listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are, positively different radio in the morning, you are with Lyle and Lawson and Janae is still with us. We're uh, so thankful to have Janae joining us for the entire week, although it's kind of a short week this week because of uh, mm. Easter holidays. Mm. Yep. How did you manage to organise your work experience on Easter holidays? You get a day off <laughs> in work experience. What's that all about? I don't know. Honestly, it's up to the school to make those decisions. Uh, but Blame the school. Blame yeah, the school. we'll blame the school. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Janae, what are you thankful for this morning? I am thankful for sleep. I, give, I you know, take my hat off to you guys for doing this every single morning. Really appreciate that. I'm sure a lot of people do as well. But, yes, I'm very thankful for sleep today. It's when you do breakfast radio for a while, you get to appreciate the opportunity to sleep in from time to time. Yeah. <laughs> Lawson. All right. So, basically, I, you know, you know when you get your group of friends into something and you're mm-hmm. like a hobby and you all start to do it together yes. and it becomes a thing. Yeah. So basically I've given all my friends the racing bug. Yes. So on Sunday <laughs> we went go-karting like Sunday night. We, well, so, uh, by Sunday night, I mean Monday morning cause it was in, in the middle East. Uh, we we're watching the MotoGP live together at our different houses. And then last night we went go-karting again, uh, because we just like want to be really good. But unfortunately, you know, we're starting to feel it in our wallets because go-karting yeah, is really so expensive. And being that we're all uni students <laughs> on set, well, for like a lot of these these guys, yeah, on Centrelink and whatnot, we're like, okay, we're starting to starting to feel it. So, yeah, we're, we're taking a bit of a step back from going to go twice a week, but we just love it. This is ah, the so best. So much fun. So much fun. That's, uh, that's definitely amazing. Well, I'm super thankful for gophers this morning. I had a gopher working for me yesterday, and I got like 10 times the amount of work done in the same amount of time. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. All right, let's have a look at some positively different news. Okay, go for Okay, it. so I have some awesome, like I said yesterday, I love environmental news. I have some awesome stuff. So this first thing I want to talk about, both of these are actually uh, tech startups in the environmental sector. This first one has to do with uh, basically reforestation after wildfires. So if you have lost property, uh, like forests on your property, if you've you know been fully just smashed by a fire, you can call a company called Drone Seed, which will fly a squadron of seed dispersing aerial robots that will lay down seed six times faster than any current method they have. That's amazing. Wow. And it would be so much more efficient too because sending up a drone, you don't have to, you know, you you don't have the maintenance costs on a drone that you have with a, you know, a a standard, you know, crop duster or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your pilot expenses are cheaper. Mm -hmm. The time to deploy is cheaper. You can, you know, land a drone sort of on the, on on, on a tiny little spot. You don't have to have an airstrip, fly backwards and forwards to an airstrip. You Mm. don't have the, you know, the, the, the maintenance regulations that you've got by using a helicopter there is a lot of savings there 100 percent. so these uh drones they uh basically they're big 
seed carrying drone. They're probably the most hectic drones I've ever seen. They've got like eight <laughs> propellers, as you can see here. They look like a bit of a spacecraft. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, they just fly out. They can carry about 25 kilo of seed. Um, a go, and they just fly around and just drop the seed, just get it done. And of course, you can program these, you know, so they operate off a GPS, and they're just going to, they're just going to, they're going to be perfect in their distribution of the seed. Whereas when you're a crop duster pilot, it's like, now where did I? Where did I drop the last lot? Let me, my, <laughs> let, let me try not to double over myself. And, of course, mm. you're going to double over yourself sometimes and then you're going to leave strips that are not covered. Whereas these, because they're working off satellite technology, they're just, you know, 100% mm. accurate. So the thing that is a little bit negative about this, and I think it's because it's so new, is that they're currently charging 275 to $400 per acre. Yeah, they're still cheaper than a crop duster, though. Really? Oh, yeah. They're frightfully expensive. Oh, well, then that's really good. <laughs> but it, it actually came up after this that it, apparently if you can um, successfully offer the land's reforestation as carbon credits on the go- global carbon market, then you can get seed for like 60 to 70% less. So you can, mate, this is just saving the world, this thing here. And I, I love it, obviously. It's just flying <laughs> drones around. I would like to think that you can just, yeah, sit there, pre-program it, say, this is the land that I want to do. And then you can just like, I don't know, sit on your lawn and drink a glass of water and just watch the, the drone fly around and do everything for you. Just to fill the drone up every time it comes back and yeah. lands at your feet. Yeah, just, you know, chuck some more seed in it. It'll go back up fly around so good so yeah this is a um, really really awesome technology that we are seeing and uh yeah it seems like it's only you know they're receiving more investments now this is a california-based startup and they're they're just getting bigger and so so talking about that i've got a friend who works with this kind of drone technology massive drones oh yeah wow. and uh rather than seeding trees what he's seeding is um herbicide Oh, wow. Okay. So he's using, <laughs> using it to get rid of noxious, um, invasive weed species here in Australia. Mm. And yeah, very similar size drones, probably, you know, that size or even bigger. Very, very effective at just going out there and nuking all of these, you know, invasive, mm. noxious weeds that are taking over our country. Good stuff. All right. The next story I have to talk about, for some reason I read this and I was like, isn't this kind of controversial but the everyone who's been talking about it's been kind of neutral but i just want to say i just want to talk about it so um another tech startup has come up with a new um source of animal feed that produces pure protein from co2 Right. Okay, so okay. the protein... Uh, I'm not sure whether this is positive news or not. Okay, I'm, so I'm just, <laughs> jury, is, jury is out on this one so far. Okay, so check it out. The protein would come from carbon dioxide generated by the by industrial exhaust and would be combined with hydrogen to create scalable, cheap animal feed to replace soybeans, a major feed crop linked heavily to deforestation. So basically we feed our animals pollution... Fatten them up on pollution and then eat them. This is what I'm thinking. So, so we're just kind of eating pollution. Because what I've read about this and what I've researched about this is that, like, this is really awesome because it has, like, a 90% retention rate of, you know, these... these uh, carbon exhaust fumes and uh, because you don't have to rely on soybeans, which, will, you know, to grow soybeans, you rely on the weather and there can be all kinds of adverse effects that can 
ultimately make your outcome less or more, whereas this is not reliant on weather. Basically, what they do is they, they mix carbon dioxide with hydrogen, put it in a fermentation tank, then they dry it out, mix it with other nutrients, put it in a pellet, and then feed it to cows. But yeah, this is the exact thing I'm thinking. It's like, so we're feeding animals pollution. Yeah, I mean, didn't we didn't we go down this path, you know, like 20 years ago when we were feeding animals, animal waste that had been turned into pellets and we ended up all catching mad cow disease. Mm. You know, it's sort of like, what are we going to get from this? Um, yeah, uh, probably living poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> all the more reason to stop eating meat, guys. Yes. Um, if don't, need, don't need to eat dead animals. Yeah, so, well, look, you can do what you want. It's up to you. But ultimately, this is this is kind of wild. I, I read this this morning, and yeah, they're talking about it's so revolutionary, so awesome. We don't need to rely on traditional plants anymore and deforestation. And then I'm like, oh, but we're, yeah, we're all going to get liver poisoning and, and pass away earlier. So, uh, heavy stuff. Also, some news coming out of the Navajo Nation in the United States, uh, the biggest uh, congregate nation of uh, Native American people in the United States. Uh, They have just recorded the second day in a row where no one a part of the Navajo Nation, uh, which kind of resides around the top of Arizona and Utah and whatnot. Uh, no one residing in that area has caught COVID in two days. That makes up about 190,000 people, uh, which, yeah, for the United States is a fantastic statistic. So we're seeing there, uh, you know, people following health rules and, uh, yeah, the, the United States starting to heal. That's fantastic. So the Navajos are doing something right there. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Uh, more serious stories. Where do you want us to go first, Pakistan or Canada? Take a pick. Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan is <laughs> yeah, where yeah, we're going. So Lahore, Pakistan, um, there is a court there has agreed to hear a death penalty petition um, against a prison inmate for defaming Islam. So this was uh, somebody who was in prison for life mm-hmm. uh, for supposedly defaming Islam in a text message. And now there have been a group of lawyers that have got together and said, no, life is inappropriate. This person needs to be executed for what they said. Uh, the person is wow. Sajad Masin. Uh, I can't pronounce the last name. And he's actually a Seventh-day Adventist, so it cuts kind of close to home. Wow. So senior lawyer Zishan Ahmed Awan has filed the, petis- the, the petition. And what this is often seen in Pakistan. Pakistan seems to be a, a very strange place when it comes to this because it's one of the few countries in the world that goes down this path. And this is not an Islamic law. This is one of the things that we need to understand. A lot of people are like, oh, this must be in the Quran or something like that. No, this is not an Islamic law. This has got nothing to do with Islam. This is actually a British law. Oh, this wow. is a law that was made by the British when the British wow. were running Pakistan. Mm. And they got sick of all of the um, inter-religious fighting between Hindus and Muslims. And they got sick of everybody shouting insults at each other. And this, of course, you know, back during the Victorian era when the death penalty was kind of... Normal. Part of normal. Yeah. And they're like, okay, fine, death penalty for anybody who starts shouting insults back, religious insults backwards and forwards. And it's just been on the books ever since. Mm. They've never taken it off. And so it's still there. And so it has created very fertile ground for radical uh, Islamic uh, fundamentalists to 
latch onto it and try and get anybody killed who says anything bad about their religion. So this man was imprisoned in back in 2013 for, wow. as a result of a text message that he sent back in 2011. Along that with that, he was fined 315,000 rupees and has been imprisoned in the Sar Iwal uh, Central Jail, which is the largest uh, prison in Asia. Um, since then, his family has been repeat, repeatedly attacked. His defence team has been repeatedly attacked and feared for their life. Um, the prosecutor, the chief prosecutor, has stated that capital punishment is the only possible sentence and that a life sentence that he did receive was repugnant to Islam. So these are guys that need to go back and read the Quran. Right. You know, this is Islam is a religion of peace, um, according to the Quran, but not according to what these guys are promoting. Um, and there is a demand in Pakistan at the moment by Orthodox Islam to make mandatory sentencing for uh, what they call blasphemy. So anybody who speaks anything against Islam is mandatory sent mandatory sentenced to life. Uh, because they see it as being a violation of Islamic ethos and Sharia rules. How did they not? Yeah, I was, I'm just thinking. How did they get a hold of the text message? Well, it was it was uh, sent to a Muslim person. So at some uh, particular point, um, he's got turned in. Wow. I mean, it's important to remember here that just like there are. Bad Muslim, bad Muslims. There are also good Muslims. Absolutely. The same as we have oh. bad and good Christians. So Absolutely. it's really important mm. not to judge the whole religion per se in general, but to just look at these, you know, specific examples. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely room for change. We've seen it before. And this is exactly why I raised the issue. This is not what you find in the Quran. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, you can read the Quran. You don't find this kind of thing being mentioned. Right. There's nothing. There's nothing in the Quran that says if you, you know, blaspheme Islam, that you get the death penalty. Mm. And so what you've got is, you know, you've got uh, fundamentalist um, Muslims who are politicizing their religion. Mm. Yeah, this is exa- we talked about this either yesterday or the day before, that, that politics is the problem with religion, politics not, is the problem. not fundamentalism. Yes. Because it, that's exactly what this is, it, because it's it's been a political power that has put, like, been England, like Britain, yes. that has put this law in place. Unbelievable. So it's it's attaching attaching religion to politics seems to always have religious persecution every single time. Every mm-hmm. single time, so, union of church and state together. Oh, that's works. terrible. Hopefully they can work through that. Uh, what, what what's going on in Canada? Though? Okay, so this is a case that has been continuing now for both of these cases have been around for a while, but we haven't spoken about them here before. And this is the court the, the case of uh, Robert. Hoogland, who is a Canadian father, he has been jailed for objecting to his daughter taking uh, testosterone and transitioning to a male. So she's a twelve-year-old girl, and basically, what happened was that she was, you know, she had some issues in her life. Her parents were separated, and she went to a school counselor, and the school counselor said, "Well, I think that you are a trans person," and so therefore, the school actually changed her gender changed her name, changed her gender without informing her parents. And this had continued on for quite mm. some time until it leaked out. Her parents found out about it. Um, her parents are separated. They share custody. The mother supported it. The father didn't. But during this time, what had happened was that she had been referred to a psychologist who is a one of Canada's actual um, foremost gender ideologues. 
and had been sent off to the um, endocrine unit there in Vancouver to receive uh, transitioning drugs. And so she'd already been... Her gender had been changed by the school. Her names and pronouns had been changed by the school. And she'd been sent for uh, permanent chemical transitioning without the consent of her parents. And so Robert Hoogland, who opposed this... Um, and, and it should be kept in mind that 95% of children under the age of 18 who make a decision to transition later regret that transition, but there's nothing you can do about it because it's not reversible. Mm. Mm. The um, her, her father basically tried to slow it down when he first heard about it, said, no, this is being rushed, we need to slow this down. He objected to it. Um, he got a lot of pushback, so eventually he took it to court. He lost the court case because the court said, no, parents have no right to make this kind of decision in relationship to their children. Only a child can make this decision, and the child has made the decision. You know, we don't let children buy rattle cans of paint right. because they're not responsible enough to buy a rattle can of paint from Bunnings. <laughs> But we let them make life-changing decisions like this. Wow. This is just mm. insane stuff. Mm. Um, and so he continued to object. He, the, the courts placed a gag order on him so that he couldn't speak on the subject. He couldn't reveal his name. He couldn't reveal his child's name. And he couldn't say anything about the subject at all. He violated that gag order. Basically, what he says is, I had a perfectly healthy child a year ago, and that perfectly healthy, healthy child has been altered and destroyed for absolutely no good reason. She can never go back to being a girl in a healthy body that she should have had. She's going to forever have a lower voice. She'll... she'll forever have to shave because of facial hair. She won't be able to have children. He says sometimes he wants to scream so that other parents and all people will jump in and understand what's going on. You can really hear his frustration coming through here in that somebody is taking his child and, as he describes, this is state-sponsored, state-enforced child abuse. Wow. This is a very, very serious situation we have happening in our world right now. This is a mm. tragedy, a generation of children being destroyed. We need to pray for our young people. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Joining us on this phone this morning is David Haupt for his, uh, well, regular weekly update on all things to do with uh, emotional health. David, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lyle, and good morning to your listeners. Good to be back. Fantastic to have you back, David. Um, one of the things that has really, I guess, been highlighted this last week in politics or week and a half has been, you know, the the sexual abuse and deviancy that has been taking place in Parliament House. I mean, this is the leadership of the nation. This is, you know, the people that we want to look up to and respect the most. Um, we've been talking about addictions and so this morning I want to talk a little bit about the role of pornography and, and porn addiction and so forth. And as I was thinking about it, I'm thinking, okay, why do we have such free access to porn? And it comes to my mind that this is one of the results of freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Now, of course, freedom of, ex of speech and freedom of expression is a right that means that we give people the right to communicate things that, um, as Christians, we abhor. And we give them that right so that we can have the right to speak about the gospel, which they equally 
abhor. They, they they can't stand it. And so this is the you know these are the rights that we kind of extend to each other, and it comes with a cost. And one of the costs is that you know there are things out there that are being said, that are being expressed, that are being communicated in various forms that we really really don't like. But when I stop and think about this. And of course, you know, there's a number of court cases where, you know, pornography has been protected in the United States and other places under freedom of expression and freedom of communication and speech. Um, and as being part of, you know, one of the costs of being part of a, a free society. So David, I know there's a long introduction, but I'm, what I'm wondering is this. Do we now have enough scientific research available to look at this from a public health perspective? Um, where we can actually look at this as a, a drug addiction, a chemical imbalance in the brain, um, and therefore a form of a pandemic. Your question is a very interesting one and a perplexing one because um, the more research actually uh, comes out and proves exactly what you propose, it's it's proving the more you find counter-research coming out. In other words, uh, people stating that there's no evidence to prove that um, the damage that's caused by pornography is the cause of pornography, but might be because people already had a predisposition or a deficiency or damage done. And um, what what happens, um, Lyle, is that we so often are blind to the impact of uh, the predisposition or the pre-exposure that we have and the damage that that has caused. When I did my uh, research studies, um, it was very much pressed upon me that I have to be very clear about the things that I've been pre-exposed to. But what's interesting in the studies of um, pornography that that is not something that is brought out. In other words, those that speak against uh, the the negative impact of pornography, nowhere in the research indicates whether they have been exposed to pornography previously or not. It's very interesting that males imprint uh, from, sexually from a visual perspective. And we know today that young boys at a very young age, I'm talking about 19, 11 years of age, access pornography and it becomes the uh, imprinting that takes place there uh, for them. So when they are later years being exposed and, and, and do research on it, they don't take into consideration the imprinting that's already there. Uh, the same with females. Females uh, doesn't imprint from a visual like boys, uh, but from an emotional. So when they are exposed to uh, pornography uh, as they the context in which they are at during that moment that they are imprinted. So my question really is those that are um, pointing out that pornography is a safe way of dealing with things, um, are they really expressing the, the, the reality? Because in the counselling room, I see something completely different. I see young men deeply uh, embroiled in mental health issues. And as I grapple with them on the mental health issues to help them, somewhere along the line comes out the fact that they are completely addicted 
to pornography. We know that pornography lowers the dopamine levels, shrinks the emotional part of the brain. Uh, we, we see the negative impact that, that it has on marriages when men desire for their wives become, as the Bible says, unnatural desires. Um, and, and I can just go on. The evidence is out, but we've got so many voices speaking against it, trying to disprove. Okay, so we've got some really solid scientific research and evidence there that is available. Why is it that there are so many voices that are opposing it? And one of the things that fascinates me is why is the feminist movement that, you know, the Me Too movement and all these other movements, why aren't they speaking out the loudest on the issue that is, I guess, the most objectifying towards women that there is, and that is pornography? Is it possible that um, we have left over the education of uh, our sexual education of those young people over to pornography? So instead of parents speaking out and stepping in, instead of the church stepping in and uh, bringing something that God has designed to be a blessing, we've allowed the world, we've allowed uh, pornography to educate our young people, and they become later on the lawmakers. They become later on the ones that are um, supposed to be protecting society, but they don't because it's become normalized. Um, it is very interesting that while men predominantly uh, lose an interest in um, in their sexual partners or it, it impacts them in a negative way towards the part of pornography, we see that women um, are reduced in their intimacy and uh, it feeds their self-objectification and body shaming and so forth. So it brings psychological in, uh, negativity uh, around, but we see that no one speaks out against that. The circumstances that we're seeing coming out of Parliament House you know, in, in in my mind would have been unimaginable 50 years ago. Uh, you know, certainly there was a lot of things that were, you know, going on behind the scenes and, you know, even back in the Victorian era, they're pretty renowned for uh, doing a lot of things, you know, a lot of skeletons in closets and so forth, but not like what we are seeing right now. Are we reaping the harvest, you know, 20, 25 years on from you know, the advent of internet porn where it suddenly became freely available to everybody and didn't have the social stigma of you either had to, you know, go and buy a magazine or rent a, uh, a VHS movie or something like that. Is that what we're seeing? Are we reaping the harvest of that now? We are. And I was shocked a few years back to watch a documentary, a report on a European parliament where parliamentarians were pushing for um, the consensual, uh, the, the age to be lowered for consensual sex to the age of five years of age. In other words, a child five years of age can give consent to sexual intercourse. That, as a grandfather and as a father, just blew my mind. What is going on in our society? Uh, how have we been warped and distorted our, our true image? Uh, in, in the 1960s, um, research uh, or interviews with ex 
porn stars indicated that, um, uh, you know, in, in the 1960s, pornography was a, uh, a, a bad experience. Nowadays, 88% of pornography is violent-based, where um, it is more in a form of rape or gagging or um, closing the airways of the partner that you, you are intimate with. Uh, there's a complete walking. So in heterosexual relationship, and I, I, I know that we are on air now, where unnatural sexual practices that normally takes place in uh, uh, homosexual relationships are now done in heterosexual relationships. And we see that women are so bent on trying to satisfy and try to, especially those that are themselves exposed to pornography, are willing to accept these degrading things because they see it as being normal. We are reaping that which we've sown from many, many years ago. Years ago, um, the average boy would think that a good-looking woman, uh, when she's naked, would have uh, staple marks in, in a tummy. Because that was what the centerfold pages of uh, Penthouse and those magazines would have. Nowadays, it has moved towards a violence and rape and aggressive behavior in the bedroom. And we see it happening in marriages, even Christian marriages, marriages where husband and wife cannot anymore perform in a natural way without pornography playing. There's been a lot of discussion as a result of this and the solution that is being pushed is the issue of consent. So consent is being pushed. This is the, this is supposedly the solution to the issue. And yet, you know, we've got so many of our kids that are, you know, as you say, from the ages of eight, nine, ten, is when they start looking at pornography, and you sort of wonder what's the what's the deal with consent right there. You know, surely we could do something to um, to, to change that situation. But you know, when it comes to sexual activity and, and young people that are involved in that, how can you know? How, how can a, a 12 or a 14 year old person have, you know, adequate knowledge and understanding of the physical, emotional, spiritual, um, social, etc. risks of, you know, all of the different sexual activities that they are may, may or may not see in pornography and then try and do themselves? Is a child capable of that depth of understanding so that they can actually give that depth of consent? Shouldn't we shouldn't we be teaching shouldn't we be teaching abstinence instead, I guess is what I'm saying, instead of consent? The biblical design is a protective design. It is never designed to to hold us back from having fun in, in life. But it is an actual fact there to secure our happiness for the future and not just for eternal future, but uh, happiness for now. It's very interesting that uh, young people uh, the earlier they start with sexual uh, practices and uh, multiple partners, even if they would marry the partner that they have had a sexual relationship with uh, before marriage, dop- uh, the, the, uh, uh, the bonding hormone, oxytocin, is released at a lower rate. So something that we have no control over is actually saying to us that we are out of sync, that we are actually destroying ourselves. So we see uh, very early after marriage has taken place that the young lady actually uh, burns out and is unable to respond emotionally and intimately towards the partner anymore. 
uh, and it's a person with whom she's had uh, multiple sex uh, prior to marriage. Why is all of this happening? Isn't there something uh, in nature telling us that there's a design that we as a nation have broken and therefore we harvest the uh, impact thereof? Um, a 12-year-old doesn't understand the emotional impact. They can have coitus, but they do not understand the, uh, the, 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 the true context of an emotional commitment and what it means. So they can have physical sexual activity, but the emotional part, they're not ready for that, and it has a very negative impact on them later in life. The sad thing is, as I said earlier on, we have allowed um, pornography to teach our children because parents are quiet on, on the subject. Churches are quiet on it. Uh, and, and therefore, our young people turn to the world to teach them, which teaches them a warped sense of what true intimacy is all about. David, this has been a heavy subject this morning. Thank you for having the courage to come on air and to address it in a very frank and upfront way. We do appreciate everything that you've had to share. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.